0: Well, good morning. good morning. This morning, we're actually not going to be dismissing our kiddos. They're all going to be in the room with us. It's a very special Sunday, uh, and we're really excited to, to be sharing it uh, with you. I'm Pastor Tommy, and I want to welcome you to Mercy House. And I, again, I'm glad that you're joining us for Easter Sunday. He is risen. He is risen. You guys are getting pretty good at that. That single fact changes everything everything. Everything. It is not only the climax of Jesus' ministry, it's not even the climax of the entire Bible narrative, but every single statement, every single promise, every single prophecy, every good and perfect piece of truth laid out in God's holy word rests upon the supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul summarizes it like this in 1 Corinthians 5.14. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. When something is in vain, it is useless. It is meaningless. It produces no result, which means that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then all I am doing is blowing hot air at you. And all you're doing is wasting a very precious, beautiful Sunday morning here with people you don't know. And more than me just blowing hot air and you wasting your time, what a sad and depressing existential crisis for all of us. Paul goes so far as as to say later on in the same passage that you and I, this is in verse 19, that we are of all people most to be pitied. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is a sick and sad delusion. Jesus was simply a person who just was a lunatic. He was a liar. And the Bible that we read so often falls flat as an ancient book of just some random ramblings that at best is a mediocre work of fiction and at worst, it is a deceptive and dangerous tool that's been manufactured for the manipulation of masses of people today. Perhaps most devastatingly to the Christian here today, if Christ had not raised from the dead, then the words of Jesus that he spoke when he instituted communion mean nothing. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. If if Jesus said those things and then he proceeded to be horrifically tortured and painfully crucified and then laid into a tomb... And then after a few days, his body was still in that tomb, and then his body started to decompose, and it started rotting, and it started returning to the dust that it came from. There would be no new covenant. There would be nothing to remember. Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice for our sin, would have been insufficient. There would hardly be anything to remember or to celebrate when we actually take communion. It would be exactly what it is, which is stale matzah, and artificially flavored grape juice. I would argue that there are no other three words in the human tongue more consequential and powerful to hear than he is risen. Some would argue that there are other three words in the human tongue that are more important, or, or yeah, would take that top spot. Some would argue words like, you are justified. And, and that's really important to hear. They would point to how those words tell us that we are made right with God, which is definitely an, an important and a, and a powerful reality that we as Christians have, to be able to have the righteousness that is required in order to be able to interact and have a relationship with our perfectly righteous God. But Paul says of this righteousness, he says in Romans 4, verse 24 and 25, it will be counted to us, this is the righteousness, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The righteousness required for justification is dependent upon Christ rising from the dead. Some might say that the words, you are forgiven, are the three most important words that a Christian can hear. And the the fact that our sins, past, present, and future, both great and minor and every single variation in between, that that they have been forgiven and that not a single ounce of guilt or shame remains on us, is an absolutely important and beautiful reality for us as a Christian. But we see in Ephesians 1-7, It says, in Him, this is Christ, in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Forgiveness cannot be separated from Christ, and dead men cannot forgive. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we wouldn't be able to hear those beautiful, sweet words, go, your sins are forgiven still, one might say, no, 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 no. The best words to hear are, you are adopted. You are adopted. That as a Christian, we are brought into the family of God. We who were once sons of Satan and disobedience and sin are now beloved sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Like, amen. That is true. And what a truly sweet reality for those of us who are Christians. But, again, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, we read, Even as He chose us in Him, this is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. No resurrection of Christ means there is no one to be adopted through. Are you starting to follow what I'm doing here? These are all glorious truths for the Christian who puts his or her faith in Christ. But if Christ did not rise from the dead, he is not worth our faith. And these truths that change our reality are not that. They are lies that help us cope with our reality. But thank God... That is not the case. Thank God that the sacrifice was sufficient, that Christ's righteousness is made ours, that forgiveness for our sin is able to be given to us, and that our adoption into God's eternal family is completed and it is final. Thank God my preaching and your faith are not in vain. Thank God that the cross of Christ is full of power and that the tomb lays empty. So, I'll say it again. He is risen. risen Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is trustworthy and true. Thank you that there is no deceit in you. Thank you that, that Jesus is not dust in the ground, but he is reigning in heaven above all of creation. Thank you for your Holy Spirit We pray now that your spirit would unblock ears. God, we pray that you would unblind eyes, that you would soften hearts so that your word could be understood and received this morning. God, we cannot do this without your help. And so we pray that by the same power that rose Christ from the dead, that you would raise those of us here who are dead in our sin so that we could be made alive again in you. God, we pray in faith and hopeful expectation that you will do something miraculous here this morning, Through the power of your word, God, we ask this all in the name of Jesus, amen. When we're looking at Romans, Romans chapter 12 and 13, they deal with what it looks like for us as Christians who have essentially believed everything in chapters 1 through 11, what it looks like for us to live as Christians. So in light of who God is and what he's done for us. And Paul begins in chapter 12 outlining our interactions with God. So it's kind of a vertical uh, view of things, and, and, and we see that our reaction to God or our interaction with Him is through worship of Him. And then he goes kind of to the horizontal, and he looks at what do our interactions look, uh, look, look like with one another, And then he kind of goes back vertical again, maybe it's like a diagonal, and and, and we see in chapter 13 that he starts looking at, uh, what at the beginning of 13, what our lives look like in interaction with the authorities that God has placed over us. And in these last verses in chapter 13, we're looking back on the horizontal level, in light of the risen Christ, what it looks like for us to interact with one another again. So that's kind of a a, a brief background for you. Let's just start reading chapter uh, 13, verse 8. Paul says, "Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, Paul begins in verse 8 there with a reiteration of the previous verse where he says to pay what is owed as a way to honor and respect the governing authorities that are over us. So he's carrying over the same sentiment over to verse 8 when he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What Paul is saying is Owe no one anything, so don't carry any debts. And, and Paul's main point here is not financial, though I do know that there are some people who would use this verse to argue that Christians shouldn't take out any lines of credit or get a mortgage or get a loan. If that's your conviction, like that's great. We can talk more about this next week as we talk about moral convictions in chapter 14 and how to honor God with those personal moral convictions and for the record, I do think it is possible to read these words and have an interp- have that interpretation, but I'm not going to argue that this morning because I don't think Paul's main point is financial. He's saying, yes, don't owe anyone anything except to love each other. Now, Paul's main point is not about debt or, or, or credit or, 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 or anything financial. He's actually talking about love. He's talking about love. Specifically, Paul is pointing out two things how love works and the debt of love we have to our neighbors. How love works and the debt of love we have to our neighbors. First, how love works. Love is never completed. We never finish loving someone. There's no perfect gift or perfect act of service or perfect poem, or perfect love song that I can perform for my wife, Caitlin, and then kind of wipe my hands off and be like, all right, I'm done loving you. That's good, I I think I did it. Because that's not how love works. Love is an open debt that can never be paid off. Now, this helps us understand, as humans, how we're actually designed, which is that we, we need constant love. It's part of how we are made. In the same way that we can never breathe enough oxygen and then just like be done breathing for the rest of our lives, the same way we can't eat enough food and then be done eating forever, despite how we might feel after a meal this afternoon, I, I will never be at a point where, where I will say, Hey, everyone around me, like, great job loving me. I'm good, like, toodaloo. Love is not a luxury, it is a necessary ingredient for human flourishing. I mean, look at just how the Bible talks about love, briefly. There's going to be a handful of verses up here. I'm going to read them for you. 1 Peter 4:8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Colossians 3, 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Let all that you do be done in love. John 15, 12, this is Jesus speaking. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The Bible doesn't talk about love as if it's something like a rare treat that you have. It talks about love as though parents are exhorting their children to eat food and eat their vegetables. And we understand why intuitively. It's because a deficit of love and affection in infants, in young children, in teenagers, in adults, can lead to all sorts of emotional and psychological and behavioral problems. Many of us have seen this in our own lives, like this is our story right here. If you've ever had the opportunity to do therapy or counseling to to care for your own mental health, which I encourage you to do, You have likely, not always, but likely traced back your current mental unhealth, some of those deep-seated heart issues to an experience or a set of experiences where someone who was supposed to love you, maybe that was a parent, maybe that was a guardian, maybe that was a mentor, maybe that was a best friend, maybe that was a spouse, they failed to love you. They failed to show you the affection, the way that God had designed you to experience it. And that is a part of living in a broken, fallen world filled with sinful people and a lack of genuine love and affection has practical consequences in how we develop and how we see the world and how we live our lives. This is why Paul is telling the church in Rome to love one another. Because we need love in order to survive and thrive as individuals and as a community. We need to love like we need oxygen to breathe and and water to drink. But do we actually love one another like this? Do we see it as our duty to love one another as a necessary ingredient for the survival of the person next to us? Or do we not? It's not easy. It's definitely not our default mindset. Do we as spouses to serve emotional and spiritual needs do we love in order to serve emotional and spiritual needs or is it part of an unspoken arrangement where our love is a part of a transactional relationship like you love me I love you that's why we love each other do we love our kids the way they as humans need our tender and compassionate love and affection or are we taking care of just their practical needs and then calling it a day which is, don't get me wrong, a way to love our children, but our kids need more than just food and shelter to be healthy, emotionally, spiritually flourishing human beings. Are we loving our roommates, our friends, our neighbors, or are we just being kind and nice to them? Because there is a difference, brothers and sisters, and and we can discern that critically ourselves when we experience it but are we aware of how we dispense it to other people many of us here today we love in the same broken ways that we've experienced it or seen it modeled for us which and i mean no disrespect to anyone's parents or their parents marriages But our standard for our love should not be what we have seen or what we have experienced or what culture says or what media portrays, but our standard for love should be what is written in the Word of God. And Paul exhorts the Romans to love genuinely. That's the word that he uses earlier in chapter 12. Not transactionally, not just meeting needs and checking off boxes, not not just being friendly, Not by being a yes man or no woman and just obliging and pampering people in our lives and loving them the way that that they just want to be loved, but by hating evil and sin and calling it out in one another and holding fast to what is good, encouraging one another toward that. That's Romans 12.9. So again, going back to verse 8 of Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, has fulfilled the law. When we love one another like this, there's more happening than just fulfilling the human needs of one another. When we genuinely love one another, we ourselves are actually walking as obedient followers of Christ. Look at what Paul says right after this in verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That is powerful love. Paul is saying when we love genuinely, when we love the way that God designed us to love, we actually do all of the law and all of the commandments which God has given us as a model for how we ought to live as God's people. See, we often, I think, remember the Ten Commandments as a list of what we ought not do. Paul lists some of them here. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. But Paul reminds us of what Jesus teaches regarding the law in Matthew 23, verses 37 and 40, that instead of focusing on what we shouldn't do, what's actually more fruitful is focusing on what we're made and called to do, which is to love God and to love one another. When we drive our car, we don't stare at the passing telephone poles. Like, if you do that, you should stop, Right? If if you're driving down the road, you don't stare at that center median as it goes by the whole time. If you're doing that, you you should stop. When we are driving, it is more fruitful and safe to focus on staying on the road and actually looking at the destination rather than being constantly anxious about driving off the road. That's how we are to drive. This is how it makes sense in understanding how love fulfills the law. The law is fulfilled when we love one another because it's, it's when we don't love one another that all of these sins pop up. That's what Paul is helping us understand in verse 10 when he says that love does no wrong to a neighbor. If we are loving our neighbor genuinely, we're, we're not stealing from them, but, but we're actually respecting their property. If, if we're loving our neighbors, then we wouldn't be jealous of them but we would celebrate what they have and celebrate all of the blessings that God has given them. If we loved our spouses, then we wouldn't lust over our neighbors, but we would reserve all of our affection and all of our passions for our wife or for our husband. If we loved our neighbors, then we'd treat them with dignity and respect and not lust over them. If we genuinely loved people around us, we wouldn't be murderously angry with them, but we would put on compassion and patience and mercy toward them. This is what Paul means when he says that love is the fulfilling of the law, that God's ultimate standard and design for how we are to interact with one another as God's people is actually on full display, not just when we avoid murdering each other or avoid lying to one another, but when we actually practice genuine love toward one another. And then the fruit of that is that we're not lying to each other, we're not murdering each other, we're not stealing, we're not lusting, we're not coveting, and so forth. Now, I need to pump the brakes here before you think that this is a moralistic sermon where all we need to do is love one another and we'll be able to fulfill the law. And if we can fulfill the law, then we're right with God. See, even this seems so straightforward. Yeah, just, just love one another. And if you're really loving one another, then you're just following the commandments. But the reality is, is that we're all terrible at this. We're terrible at this. No one loves all people around them perfectly. If we did, then based on the logic of God's Word in this passage, there would be no sin. The fact is that there's plenty of sin and plenty of failures of God's law because we fail to love each other and we do harm to our neighbors practically every single day. So Paul's exhortation to love is not so that the Romans uh, can fulfill the law and then become Christians. Remember, he is speaking to a room of Christians, to the church in Rome. And that remember that the central idea to the entire letter of Romans is that salvation is received by faith. It's not received by works. But beginning with chapter 12, Paul is showing us, we who are saved, this is how we are now to live. And that's where all of this kind of fits in. If you are a Christian, if you've been saved by faith, in the risen Christ, then we are to live the way that God designed us to live, which is in genuine love of all of those around us each and every day of our lives. But before we get carried away with us and how we need to respond and what we need to do, let's remember on this Easter, along with every other single day that you are alive, that it is all about Jesus and, and where we have failed to keep the law and have sinned, it was Jesus who actually fulfilled the law perfectly. And he did this n- not just to, uh, uh, by avoiding sin, but by perfectly loving us. Jesus didn't die on the cross just because he hated sin. He endured every ounce of cosmic pain under the unbridled wrath of God because he loves you. He loves you, each of you. He didn't just fulfill an obligation on Good Friday. He volunteered to demonstrate with his life and with his death the supreme and holy burning love that he has for you. John 15 verses 12 through 14 says this. This is is Jesus speaking. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. I read that earlier, but look at 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What we celebrate on Easter is the single greatest, most beautiful and powerful display of love in all of existence. There will never be a greater act of love. There will never be a a greater display of affection than Christ laying down his life for you and being crucified for your sin. Like, may God help us understand and experience this truth. If we did, we would be blown away. Quite literally, Paul prays in Ephesians 3 verse 18, that we would actually have the strength to be able to comprehend God's love for us. That's how intense and epic and grand God's love for us is. It is like nothing we have ever seen anywhere else in the world. Not like the love that a husband and a wife have for each other on the wedding day. It's not seen in the love of a mother for her child after giving birth. Like Whatever the most intense display of love and affection is in your minds, like, think of the intro of the movie Up that makes everyone so weepy as you see these two old people growing old in love. Like, that's really beautiful. It gets me every time. But that and all of the instances of love we've seen in our lives are, are just shadows of what is displayed on the cross for us. First John chapter 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. The charge to go love our neighbors is a response. It's a response. Without the love of God, which led Christ to the cross, we cannot love. They talk about a standard for what love should look like. Not looking at our parents, not looking at culture, not looking at the media, not looking at what we've experienced on a, on a human level on the earth, but we're looking at what Christ did for us. Thank God for his love for us. Amen. Let's read these last verses and finish for the day. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand in the world as we know it. Darkness had its day on Good Friday when, when our king hung limp and dead on the cross. It was God's love that led him there. It was our sin that held him there until he took his very last breath. Alden reminded us during the Tenebrae service on Friday that this was so wrong on so many different levels that, that the spiritual darkness, which had seemingly won, was accompanied by a physical darkness that fell over the whole land. It, it was a full uh, eclipse of the sun in, in the middle of the day. It wasn't even an eclipse. It was, it was a darkening of the world, darkness falling over all the land as all of creation mourned and grieved the death of the Son of Man. I don't know what darknesses you have experienced in your life, but none of it compares to the darkness that Jesus endured for you. This is not to diminish your suffering or your pain or your misery, but as Alden reminded us on Friday, that the excruciating darkness that Christ experienced while being forsaken by the Father on, on, on behalf of our sin, it has no equal. That was the darkest moment in all of human history. But that darkness, the darkness that this world once knew, when it existed without a hope, without a Savior, is long gone. Like, it is history. It is a thing of the past, That darkness is not one that you or I or our children or our children's children or anyone who puts their faith in Christ will ever see or know ever again. Verse 12 says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Those of us who were at the sunrise service this morning, awesome time, we watched as the darkness of night was just being consumed by the dawning of the day. The the light overwhelmed the darkness. The rays of the sun pierced through the shadows with zero resistance. And the grief and the mourning of our king was over, and darkness was defeated. And the dawn reminded us of the most important three words that anyone could hear. He is risen. If Christ is risen, and if it's daytime, then it's time for us to wake up. That's what Paul is saying in these final verses. We who were once asleep in the darkness of our sin, those of us who, who are groggy and some kind of moral drowsiness, struggling to love one another to, and, and to live in the way that God has designed us and called us to live, Paul says, wake up, wake up. Darkness is no longer reigning. The night is far gone. If you're not a Christian, I pray that this would be the cosmic moment that God has roused you from your sleep. And I pray that he would open your eyes in this very moment to see and behold God's love for you and his power to be able to save you from the darkness of your former life. If you want this, if you're like, oh, yeah, I think I'm ready for that, And all you need to do is put your faith and your trust in Christ and to acknowledge Christ and then be awake and alive as one who is made right with God, who has been forgiven, who has been adopted. All those truths we talked about earlier. If you are a Christian, look at what Paul says, not just to wake up from sleep, but look at verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. I don't know what your morning routine is, but there's a difference between waking up and getting up, am I right? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Some of you have had your spiritual eyes opened and, and you are awake, but what you're doing is the spiritual equivalent of hitting the snooze button and rolling back over. Paul says to not only wake up, but to get up. He says walk properly as in the daytime, which means not walking like we did when it was still dark, before we knew the light of Christ, when we were still in the darkness of our own sin. For some of us, we need to turn off the alarm and not just snooze it, We need to swing our legs over to the edge of the bed, and we need to answer God's call in Romans 12.1 to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice each and every day as an act of worship of God. The night is far gone, Christian, and Satan wants nothing more than for us to stay in bed, being spiritually groggy and snoozy, being ambivalent about sin, to care about no one else except for our own comfort, to love no one else except loving ourselves. That is not the way we walk properly as in the daytime. But Paul's illustration continues. Each morning we wake up, we get up, and then we get dressed. (laughs) We get dressed. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Jump to verse 14 but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Yesterday, I got into an argument with my eldest, Chloe, and uh, I won. (laughs) That's not the point. She was playing outside and she was complaining that it was getting hot and I told her, hey, you should go get dressed for the day and she was still wearing her leopard print uh, fleece onesie PJs, okay? And she kept asking me why and I started with, because I'm asking you to, okay, just go, go get dressed. And she said, why again? And I said, can you please just go get dressed? And she asked me a third time, why, daddy? And I said, look, Chloe, it's because you're in your fleece PJs and because you're seven, seven years old and it's fitting that you get changed into real clothes, not to mention it's 1.30 p.m., it's sunny outside, and, and this is not the time or the weather for, for your PJs, so go get dressed. And she got dressed, right? That was enough for her. I actually asked her, I was like, do you need more reasons? Caitlin remembered. And she was like, no. And she went upstairs and got dressed. (laughs) Now, look, I'm all for lounging around in PJs. So that's not the point I'm trying to make. But there is a time and a place, and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying to cast off the works of darkness. This is the behavior and sin from our old lives. And to put on the clothes for the day, since it is no longer night. He says to put on the armor of light. And in verse 14, to put on Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the question for us is, what do we clothe ourselves with on a daily basis? And I don't mean your outfit. I don't care what you wear. Neither does Paul. But are we still wearing our proverbial PJs, the clothes from a former life? Are we living in patterns of sin and brokenness that we've been woken up from and we're still wondering, like, why is living in the light so uncomfortable? It's because you're wearing your clothes from your former life when you should be putting on the armor of light and putting on Christ. So a practical question is, how do we clothe ourselves each morning? Do we clothe ourselves with the news? Is that the first thing we run to? Do we clothe ourselves with a television show? Do we put on whatever social media, our social media feed is displaying for us? How are we preparing ourselves to walk throughout our day? This was the question that many of us asked ourselves during Lent. Many of us gave up things that we felt we were depending on in unhealthy ways, that we were actually clothing ourselves with in unhealthy ways. And hopefully what happened in, instead is, is not just a foregoing of something unhealthy, but more fruitfully, a putting on of something that was healthy. We, 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 are, we are in a place where, where we are called to put on and clothe ourselves with Christ. And the way that we do that is by reading God's word, by being in prayer conversations with God all the time, by, by, by being in healthy Christian fellowship with other Christian believers, by, by loving God and by loving one another. Mercy House, the night is far gone. So hear God's word this morning. Wake up, get up, put on Christ. Because this is why Jesus died for you. Not so that you could keep hitting the snooze button, but to defeat sin and death that is in your life and to put an end to your night, to give you a new dawn to wake up to and to give you the Holy Spirit who gives you the power to be able to get up from your old life and to walk in your new life. None of this is possible if Christ had died and never came back. But death could not hold him. The darkness lost its grip on him. The tomb lies empty. And the three words that we celebrate today with worship and fellowship and great feasting are these. He is risen. risen Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be not just awake, but alive, God. Lord, I pray for those who are sleeping and dead. I pray that your gospel would penetrate their hearts in a supernatural way so that they could be awake and alive. Lord, for those of us here who are drowsy and snoozy, help us, Lord, have a desire for your word, a desire for you, and a willingness to get up, God, Lord, help us all to put on Christ. Help us, Lord, uh, not just to walk by the strength of our own power, Lord, but to put on you. We thank you for your spirit and the fruit of your spirit, which gives us everything we need to walk as those who have put their faith in you. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray, God, as we sing songs to you, as we respond to these words, help us. Lord, shout with all of our might for the glory and the joy that you have made possible because of your resurrection, God. We thank you that you are a God who is not weak or who, who, who is not able to save, but you are a God who conquers. We love you, God, so much. We thank you that you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.